Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there are PayPal buttons on every page of the site. And when I say possible, not only possible for us to invest the time we do in it, but also possible for us to make it freely available uh, with no kind of fee or entry barriers of any kind. My guest today is Ken Wilbur, and I'm delighted to have Ken on the show. I've wanted to have him on for years. We're finally doing it. It's hard to really do justice to Ken in any short bio like the one I'm about to read. But let me read this, and uh, then we'll flesh it out a little bit more. And we have a whole list of points and topics we want to discuss today. Um, So Ken has over two dozen published books, translated in nearly as many languages. He has created what is widely considered the first truly comprehensive integral map of human experience. By exploring and integrating the major insights and conclusions of nearly every human knowledge domain in existence, uh, Ken created the revolutionary AQAL, A-Q-A-L, integral framework, which he'll be explaining more in this discussion. In short, the integral approach is the coherent organization, coordination, and harmonization of all the relevant practices, methodologies, and experiences available to human beings. Ken states, you can't realistically honor various methods and fields without showing how they fit together. That is how to make a genuine world philosophy. He is the founder and nonprofit of the nonprofit think tank Integral Institute, co-founder of the transformational learning community Integral Life, co-founder of Source Integral, Source Integral, exploring the nature of integral society, and current chancellor of Ubiquity University. So, welcome, Ken. Good to be here. Let's uh, throw in a few little biographical tidbits. I, I listened to one interview you did which, in which you said that you, you wrote your first 10 books while working full-time as a dishwasher. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and very true. Yes, I did all of my formal education in things like I went to Duke University and medical school, decided that wasn't really creative enough. I switched over to biochemistry, uh, get a graduate degree in that. I thought I could do research. But none of those were really addressing all of those sort of silly questions about who am I, why are we here, what does it all mean? And it was about that time um, that I discovered uh, Eastern traditions, And this just blew me wide open. I'd never heard anything like it. This certainly wasn't the spirituality that I got in Sunday school. Um, And so I just became absolutely um, enthused, totally uh, enthused with these, what seemed to be much deeper approaches to spirituality and seemed to steer away from the, frankly, really problematic sort of fundamentalist approaches. You know, every word in the Bible is literally true. Moses really did part the Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. And these approaches to spirituality had nothing to do with that. They weren't a matter of believing dogmatic, mythic, literal stories. They were 
technologies of consciousness transformation. And this is radically new to me. I'd never seen anything like it. And of course, I got completely taken up with it. And so I've been practicing Zen. I started studying Vedanta. I managed to come back around to forms of Christian contemplation, working with Taoism. I went to at least a dozen of the world's major traditions. While I was doing that, I had dropped out of graduate school because that just really wasn't interesting me at all. And I was with a woman at the time, and we eventually got married. We're married for 10 years. And I came home one day and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop out of graduate school, and I want to write a book. Um, and I told my professors that. Um, they were used to, you know, talking about biochemical pathways and um, biophysics research and so on. And I said, no, I'm going to write a book on the soul and consciousness and stuff. And they just absolutely freaked out. They thought I'd gone completely stark raving insane. Um, but I did. And after studying... Well, the initial approach was I would study a particular approach, like let's say gestalt therapy. Then I would study Zen and practice them. And then I would get psychoanalysis. And then I would get Vedanta. And there was something profoundly correct and important and useful in all of them. But unfortunately, most of them also contradicted each other, disagreed with each other in really profound ways. And this started to become confusing to me. And it, it, it dawned on me that before I was going to be able to get from sort of an unhappy state to a happy state, I was going to have to get from this confused state to an unconfused state. So I really wanted to know how all of these various approaches fit together, if there wasn't some sort of larger overall integrating framework that would allow each of their respective strengths to fit together in a way where they weren't just blatantly disagreeing with each other. And so I spent uh, a couple of years studying that. And when I was 23, uh, came up with my first book called The Spectrum of Consciousness. And he gave at least one version of how to bring together all of these major approaches to self-realization, including Gestalt, psychoanalysis, Jungian, Vedanta, Zen, Taoism, and so on. And the book is called, like I say, The Spectrum of Consciousness, and even though I was 23 at the time, it sort of catapulted me into a kind of semi-fame. And that got my, my career started. So what I had to do, though, in order to make a living, is I agreed with my partner, the woman I was living with, that we would just split costs down the middle. So we'd each pay half the rent, each pay half the phone, that kind of thing. So I had to go out and get some sort of job. And I ended up basically 
working in a place called the Red Rooster Restaurant. And uh, it was the finest fried chicken in a five-state area. So working there and ended up, my job there was bussing tables and washing dishes, which, by the way, is the lowest, lowest possible role in a restaurant that you can have. That's the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the jobs that you can get. Uh, it turned out to be sort of perfect for me because I was very, very much into Zen at that time. So those kinds of roles, you know, had a very sort of Zen flavor to them. And so it all kind of fit together. But I did for the next 10 years work as a dishwasher and a busboy. And I also, during those 10 years, wrote about a book a year. And so that's what kind of really, really got me into the field. And then after the point that I'd written about 10 books, and these are being translated into eventually upwards of almost 30 foreign languages, then I could start to support myself. And that's just essentially what I kept doing all the way to today. Cool. I have a follow-up question. It'll take me a minute to ask, and then you can go with it. So you mentioned a number of things you had done, and a couple other things I had been aware of were Adi Da, TM, Philip Kaplow, um, some Tibetan Buddhist masters, Shabda Yoga. And um, there's a number of years ago you made a video where you hooked yourself up to an EEG machine and showed how different kinds of meditation change your brainwaves. I think, I think it's called Ken Wilber Stops His Brain or something like that. And at one point you suspended virtually all your brainwaves while maintaining what you described as a certain kind of witnessing. Um, you mentioned that you were doing a very specific and rare kind of meditation to achieve this. So I have a two-part question. Is it possible to describe the meditation you were doing? That's one part. And second part is, you know, many people I interview say they have experienced a significant and abiding awakening at the risk of putting you on the spot. Have you? Yeah. Okay. Well, that Ken Wilber stops its brain waves. That's not actually a specific type of meditation that's taught in almost any of the traditional forms of meditation. There are some similar ones in Theravada, for example, you can get into what's called Nervikapa or even deeper, uh, something called Narod. Narod means complete cessation, so that no objects arise in, in manifestation at all. And in the deepest form that that is the state of nirvana, where there's just no samsara, no manifestation arising at all. And those are very real states. We saw shocking examples of them during the Vietnam War, where monks protesting the war would get into you know their lotus position and then get into that state of Narod or Nirvana or cessation where nothing is arising, no manifest form is arising. And because of that, they were literally free of all pain, all suffering, all desire, all ego. And so immune were they to any sort of painful stimuli, continuing to sit in these in their lotus positions, they had their bodies doused in gasoline and set on fire. 
and every one of them burned to the ground, completely to ashes, and not one of them even flinched. Now, that's a real state of cessation. That is a real state of nirvana. And that's why nirvana claims it's free of pain, free of suffering, and so on. It is. That's a very real state, and you can get into it. The state that I got into was similar to that, in that a lot of major activities were being stopped. But it was also a combination. It's very hard to explain. It was also a combination of a Chen type of inquiry. If somebody comes up to you and says, for example, how do you feel from a physical point of view? You sort of, you can introspect and you'll say, okay, I, I feel sort of a little twitchy, a little uncomfortable, have some muscle pains, whatever it is, you'd have some sort of response to how you felt physically. And then if we could say, well, how do you feel emotionally? And you would introspect and you'd come up with some sort of certain response on how you felt emotionally. And then I could say, okay, now how do you feel mentally? And you would introspect and come up with some sort of response to that. Now, what if I say to you, how do you feel right now from all three of those perspectives at once? Now, almost always the first thing that happens when you're asked that kind of question is your mind just goes blank. And there's just a, a, an asking, a questioning, an inquiring but nothing is really arising at first. It's just a pure, clear awareness without any real activity. Some people get the same kind of state if they're walking around the corner and somebody jumps out and goes, boo! And then for just a microsecond or two, you're just electrically frozen. Nothing's arising. You, you don't feel any, you know, jerkiness of fear, anything, but just for a few seconds, you're just pure clarity without even moving. And then all of a sudden, emotions start pouring out, your heart starts pounding and all that. But for that second or two, you're in this really pure place of just sheer clarity. Same as if somebody says, how do you feel from all those different perspectives? That's the closest I can describe the type of attitude that I get into where these brain states just really go essentially, well, on the screen, they just all go to zero. Now, of course, they're not totally zero because the brain states are, the brain cells are still alive. I mean, the brain's not actually flatlined. It's not dead. But, But the fairly sophisticated EEG machine shows is that in left and right hemisphere, beta, theta, alpha are all zero. And then there's nothing but delta, which is equated with deep dreamless sleep, turiya, the pure witness, the transcendental awareness. And that was constant during all of this because I'd been meditating over a decade by then, and have a fairly constant state of witnessing available to me. So to answer the second question, and traditionally, teachers avoid that question. 
because it's completely paradoxical. And if you say, oh, yes, I'm enlightened, then that's taken to be, you know, egoic bragging. And if you say, well, no, I'm not enlightened, then that's taken to mean, well, why should I study with you? So you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But putting aside those subtleties, we know what that means. We know that even though the enlightened state is said to be almost universally, to be a state that's ever-present, that cannot be attained, because it's literally 100% of it is present right now, and you are 100% aware of it. So there's no bringing it into being. It's absolutely unattainable. The Prajnaparamita Sutras say over and over and over again, if you could only understand that enlightenment is unattainable, you would be enlightened. And it's unattainable because it's already present. You can't attain that enlightened state any more than you can attain your lungs or acquire your feet. Also, everything so, that anybody attains is usually something other than themselves. You know, I attain a certain job or I attain a certain experience. But what we're alluding to here is something which you are. It's not anything other than yourself. And, and then the paradox is, yes, that's true. And usually when you have a so-called, you know, satori or metamorphosis or moksha experience, one of the most common things that people will report when they get that oneness with everything, as extraordinary and outrageous as, as it can feel, a very common component is, oh, that, God. I really have known that my entire life, before my life. I've known it before the Big Bang. I've always known this. And that's a very strong part of genuine waking up experiences. So Zen actually has kind of, has a, a statement that sort of encapsulates this paradox and it goes like this. If in training for the Tao, if there's any discipline, any attempt to get it, then the completion of that discipline marks the destruction of the Tao. However, if there's no discipline in the Tao, one remains an ignoramus. So that's the paradox. It's always already fully present, literally, 100%. And there's never a point in your life when you're not directly in touch with that fully enlightened mind. And that includes during waking, dream, and deep sleep. It's a constant consciousness that is always present. But clearly, there are times when you realize that and then you can also look back and realize there are times you didn't realize that. So it could be fully present, but you still didn't see it. And then when you see it, one of the things you realize is, ah, I've always known this. This is the one thing I've always known. This is the only thing I can know. It's the only thing that's real. Of course, I was aware of it. So within that paradox 
understanding that, well, the first sort of satori I had was with a Zen teacher named Katagiri. And I'd been in a state of, of witnessing for several days. And he knew that. And so he walked behind me and he said... And, and let me just interject here. So when you yeah. say witnessing, just to make sure everybody understands your terminology, and for several days, does that mean 24-7 even during deep sleep? Yes. And then Katagiri said, the witness is the last stand of the ego. And with that, the witness just completely disappeared. And there was just this direct, radical oneness with everything that was arising. There no separate self, no Ken Wilbur in that sense, although this thing named Ken Wilbur was arising. I wasn't identified with that any more than I was with the chair or the table or the woods outside. It was just all part of manifestation, all arising. And what I was, was all of that. One with absolutely everything that's arising moment to moment. That was my true self. And that realization, again, it's paradoxical. You can realize it and understand that this is actually the only thing that's ever 100% real. It's the only thing that you are aware of all the time. And then as soon as you have this paradoxical waking up to that, then you realize that that's been this reality that you've known all along. So those kinds of waking up, those kinds of satori's or ken shows, moksha experiences, and so on, those continue to deepen over the years. And um, it came, it got to the point where uh, most of the time I was what's called constant consciousness, which is you're aware twenty four hours a day through waking dream, deep sleep. There's a tacit awareness through all of that unbroken um, that still can deepen. And I think actually there's almost no limit to how much it can keep deepening, even though when you get those early realizations, they are staggeringly profound. And it's really clear that if there is an ultimate reality, this is it. And I would say well over 95% of the people that have that kind of deep satori agree that this is the most real thing they have ever seen. And it doesn't matter if these people are ditch diggers, ditch diggers waitresses, PhD uh, technologists, doctors, lawyers, 95% of them agree, okay, this is it. This, this is reality. And that's why it stuck around for thousands of years. Not many people have it because it's still not that well known. But those that do have it, know it. And um, it changes their lives clearly, profoundly. Yeah. One of the major things we're going to talk about today is um, your theme of waking up, uh, cleaning up, growing up, and, and also... I'd like to also talk about your notion of lines of development and maybe those two are synonymous or maybe they're sort of overlapping like a Venn diagram and, and, you know, relate to each other. So let's launch into that and I'll have some questions for you as we go along. Maybe you could give people an overview. Yeah. Okay. 
It used to be, and this happened even, it was certainly what most of the great traditions believed. Even in the 1960s and 70s, as Eastern traditions rushed into the United States, and there were several new schools of psychology that were founded by some of the very, very greatest psychologists in America and around the world. And one in particular called transpersonal psychology was founded by Abraham Maslow, uh, one of America's two or three greatest psychologists. Um, And it was specifically to study these kinds of satori or enlightenment or waking up experiences because you just didn't find that in psychology anywhere uh, in the West. Um, But clearly something profound was going on. And so that school started, and when it started, almost everybody felt strongly that if you got a Satori, everything was fixed. If you had unconscious shadow elements and you had Satori, it would wipe out all of those shadow elements. If you had any problems in your life, having a Satori would absolutely fix them. It is because Satori, you're becoming one with God. You're becoming one with spirit. You're becoming one with everything. How could you possibly go wrong under those circumstances? And we had articles written literally by the hundreds explaining about how you get Satori. It lifts the repression barrier. All the shadow stuff comes up and is integrated. You start um, developing through all the developmental scales, Maslow's scales, Kohlberg's scales, Levinger's scales. You just whip through all of those. Everything is cool. Get Satori and you are Superman. You are Superwoman. It's all taken care of. We believe that strongly for several years, for at least a decade. By the end of that time, we started looking at realizing, wait a minute, that some things are not quite right here. And to make a long story short, after watching for about 50 years, which is about how long it's been since these Eastern traditions came into this country, and we've watched teachers, spiritual teachers, meditation students, we've watched them for 50 years and we found that the waking up experience is profound and it does a staggering number of things. But there are also a huge number of things that it doesn't fix at all. And you can list their dozens not even obvious things like it won't make you a great banker. Uh, get Satori and it won't, you won't know how to do the Schrodinger wave equation in quantum mechanics. Get Satori, you won't be able to run a four-minute mile. Get Satori, you won't lose 80 pounds you know, of ugly weight. I mean, enormous number of things it didn't do. So what did it do? Well, there are a couple areas that we really thought that it did that we found out it really didn't. One of them was what we call cleaning up. In other words, that's what cleaning up is referring to are psychotherapeutic, psychoanalytic, 
various forms of practices that help individuals uncover, come to grips with, and integrate their shadow elements. And shadow elements are various types of emotions, feelings, thoughts, impulses that you yourself is uncomfortable with for various reasons. You could have been told, you may take anger, for example. Maybe your parents told you you shouldn't have anger. Maybe the religion you were brought up in said you can't have anger. Maybe you just felt extremely uncomfortable whenever you had anger. And so you would push it out of awareness. You would actually disown it. But unfortunately, simply pushing it away didn't actually make it go away. It turned it into very painful neurotic symptoms, occasionally even psychotic. And that was a real problem. Now, originally, during the period where we thought that Satori did everything, we thought it would cure shadow elements. What we found as we watched people meditate for 50 years is that it did not necessarily address shadow elements. In some cases, it made it worse. Because one of the stances of meditation, for example, when type meditation, is just witnessing. And something comes up and you go, I have that, but I am not that. I'm aware of that, but I am not that. I see that, but I am not that. And just pure disidentification, disidentification, disidentification. The problem with shadow anger is that you've pushed it out of your system. You haven't integrated it. And so if you're meditating and that anger comes up and you're just going, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, you just end up pushing the anger farther and farther away. As you push it farther and farther away, you're just continuing to dissociate it. You're not integrating it. Before you can actually let go of it, you have to fully own it. If not, you're just aggravating the dissociation. You're aggravating the repression. You're not owning it. You're disowning it. And that's what meditation would do and make it worse. So the point is we started. Let me interject a question here. Um, Now, you know, some of the ancient traditions like Buddhism have all sorts of ethical and moral and behavioral admonitions and Patanjali with his yamas and niyamas. So it seems like those guys tried to address the cleaning up issue. Uh, and there was, you know, when I was studying under Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he, he refuted the notion that Patanjali's eight limbs were sequential. He said the limbs grow simultaneously the way the limbs of a body do as it grows. And that with the degree that Samadhi grows, the other limbs will grow. But, you know, as you've been saying here, um, that doesn't seem to have panned out in, in the real world. So I, I'm more inclined to think along the lines that you're you're saying now. But what do you what do you make of the fact that these ancient traditions did seem to try to address yeah, the cleaning that, up that's issues? Very straight very straightforward. If you let, let me let me just give an example, let's say, of where I'm repressing my anger. And so my anger starts to show up in 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 a recurrent dream I have where there's a monster chasing me. It wants to eat me and devour me. And what I feel every night in that dream is fear because this thing is about to, to eat me. This monster that is my projected anger 
is now coming after me because I'm not owning that anger. And so when I, when an angry monster is coming after me to eat me, I feel overpowering fear. And I'll wake up, you know, breathing fast and sweating and go, oh, my God. Now, if I take that scenario, just that, that there's a monster chasing me and I feel fear, and I go to the traditions, all the traditions have very sophisticated understanding of defiled emotions. They don't understand repressed emotions. So if I go to a tradition and pre- to a teacher and present this complaint, uh, here's a dream with a monster chasing me and I'm feeling fear, then what would happen like in Tibetan transmutation processes is they would work with the fear as the primary emotion. And they would teach you to go into that fear and have it transform into a higher wisdom, which is how many traditions would work. Now, the only problem with that is it's working with that fear that it's working is isn't an authentic emotion. It's a diseased emotion. It's emotion. It's the product of repressed anger. No tradition knows that. So what would actually happen if you took that same dream to like Freud or Fritz Pearls, they would first say, okay, we want you to talk to this monster back and forth, establish a relationship, find out what it wants. Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And then change places. You play the monster. And so now you're sitting there, I want to, eat you. I want to kill you. And so, so as you play the monster, you're getting in touch with this deep anger. And so you go back and forth talking that. And so then you're going from being a person that has fear to being a monster that has anger. Now that anger is what the real emotion is. That's where it started. That's the authentic emotion. And so the final step is, okay, now you identify with that monster. Let that monster be you. Reown it and reown that anger. So you take that anger back. You're not taking fear into yourself. That's a false emotion. And if you take that false emotion into yourself, you produce a false wisdom. You first have to take the anger back and make that real so that you have the anger pointing that way. The monster is you. You're simply projecting it. You won't get that in any of the traditions because that kind of repressed emotion wasn't discovered until about 100, 150 years ago by Freud, Jung, Adler, auto rank, and so on. So we find that understanding of actually repressed, dissociated emotions, we find that only in the modern West. We find it in none of the spiritual traditions, East or West, anywhere. All they do is work with whatever emotions are there, but they don't understand all of the psychodynamic processes that can, that can make those motions to be false and authentic emotions. They're not the real source of the problem. The source is an even deeper emotion 
that's getting repressed and then turned in to these other emotions. That's what the traditions work with. Cleaning up works with the actual source of the emotional problem. And that's why we found that even as people meditated, some people have been meditating 50 years, and their shadows, meaning repressed emotions, were not only not getting better, in many cases they were getting bigger. Because as I said, it was making some forms of meditation make repressed emotions worse. So what we're saying is that there is a process of waking up that's incredibly important. But this process of cleaning up, working with actually repressed, dissociated, disowned emotions, that's a discovery humanity figured out only about 150 years ago. And so that's much too recent to appear in any of the world's great spiritual traditions. And in fact, it appears in none of them. So those are the two things. That's one of the things that we split off. You can't expect a spiritual teacher. What you can expect them to do is help you wake up. If they're a good teacher, if they're authentic teacher, not all of them are. But if they're authentic, that's what you can get. You're not going to get cleaning up from no matter how good the teacher is, unless they've actually studied practices for cleaning up. And, of course, that's what we do in what we call integral spirituality. But almost no spiritual systems out there have a good understanding of cleaning up. And that's really a disaster because almost everybody that goes into religion or spirituality, they almost always have some sort of shadow elements that are part of their motivation. They're in there because of enormous guilt or um, obsessive compulsive drives or deep types of jealousy or anxiety or depression. And those can only be reached by going to, to the original emotional forms themselves and not simply by using techniques way up here where secondary emotions are being produced. That won't do it. So what we want to start doing is saying, okay, with more complete forms of spiritual practice, we do want to include waking up. And we, that's, we talked a little bit about that, about being one with everything and waking up to that. So we're adding now cleaning up. And we can talk about that. And then I'll go on to the next major one, which is the growing up factor and talk about why that's important. I have heard you saying here is that, you know, just as the modern sciences, such as physics, chemistry, et cetera, know all kinds of things that the founders of the ancient traditions couldn't possibly have known and didn't know, even the modern science of psychology, if we want to call it a science, has something amazing or valuable to contribute that the founders of these traditions didn't know. And um, moreover, uh, well, you, you, you mentioned how uh, the shadow stuff can get actually magnified in an awakened being. And unfortunately, we have all too many examples of that where these p 
people who apparently are highly enlightened and who radiate Shakti and who, who are amazingly charismatic and articulate and, and everything else are behaving in ways that, you know, their followers think, I wouldn't behave that way. Why is this guy behaving that way? And, and then they think, well, who knows? He's enlightened and he must be, he's in tune with God. And so it's crazy wisdom. And who am I to say? And they kind of do all this rationalizing and, and sort of jettison, jettison their, their discrimination, you know, much to, which creates huge problems. Yes. Yes. That's, that's part of the problem. And that's part of if spirituality is going to actually survive into tomorrow, it's clearly going to have to take these things into account. And we'll see this, especially when we get to the, to the topic of growing up. But right now, it's, it's pretty well known that traditional religion, uh, which usually doesn't include these types of waking up practices or practices for liberation and satori and moksha, but just much more sort of a fundamentalist Christian or fundamentalist Muslim or Orthodox Jew uh, and so on. And even a large number of um, practicing Buddhists and practicing Hindus um, have, uh, those are essentially belief systems for how to get them reborn in some happy afterlife of uh, some Buddha heaven, um, which, by the way, you can't get enlightenment in those heavens. In order to get enlightenment, you have to have a precious human body, which means you have to be on this earth, in this life, in this body to get enlightenment. But if religion is going to be able to exist into tomorrow, and I say this in the background of such data as in Northern Europe, for example, today, the percentage of the population that considers itself truly spiritual is 11%. That's down from about 95% during the Middle Ages. Religion is going just like that. The places that it's starting to catch up are developing countries and individuals that are starting their growth and development. And we'll see that when we start looking at, at what we call growing up. Because growing up are the levels, stages of development that all human beings go through. And what we find in those developmental sequences is that the lower stages tend to universally have beliefs and things like um, magic and mythic. And not in any high sense, not like in true cities or paranormal powers or even ESP. There's a fair amount of evidence that things like ESP exist. We're talking, when we say mythic in this case, we mean something um, James Fowler called that stage of spiritual development, mythic literal. Because people believe in myths and they believe that they're to be taken absolutely literally. So if you're a Christian fundamentalist, you believe that Moses really did part the Red Sea, that Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt, that God really did rain locusts down on the Egyptians. 
the logo might have happened, was born. I think, but I don't know about the other two. <laughs> Could have been uh, some environmental plague or something like that Utah had when there was this huge locust invasion at one point when the Mormons first went out there. But anyway, continue. <laughs> yes. Well, any of those, Christ being uh, born of a biological uh, virgin, those kinds of things. But the higher stages of growing up um, don't have those kinds of beliefs at all. Um, and if we use, um, well, before I come back to that, let me, let, let me give a quick intro to, to really what cleaning up is. Because what we found is that uh, human beings have perhaps upwards of a dozen multiple intelligences, they have cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, linguistic intelligence, um, uh, uh, spatial intelligence. They also have something called spiritual intelligence. And spiritual intelligence is just that. It's, these are called multiple intelligences. And these have to do with how individuals think how they use their intellect to reason about moral situations, aesthetics, uh, interpersonal interactions. There's a moral intelligence, and and that means uh, thinking about morally what's the what's the right thing to do, and so on. There's a difference when it comes to spirituality between waking up, which is usually a direct spiritual experience. And then spiritual intelligence in growing up. And that's simply how we think about spirit. It's an intellect. So it's how we intellectually conceive of God or spirit or ultimate reality. Even when a new atheist is thinking about ultimate reality and trying to decide whether it's there or not, that person is using their spiritual intelligence they're deciding that there isn't anything like spirit. But whenever we, the, the multiple intelligence called spiritual intelligence is the, in any time human beings think about ultimate realities or think about what Paul Tilly called ultimate concern, by definition, they're using their spiritual intelligence. Whether they're atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Hindus, doesn't matter. Now, spiritual intelligence, like all of the multiple intelligences, they're all very different from each other. But study after study has shown that they all go through essentially the same levels of intelligence. So you have different lines going through the same levels. And it's hard to find names for these levels of development, because almost any name you use will and will be coming from just one of the dozen multiple intelligences. So if you say, well, this level is a level of conformist belief. Well, that's true in the moral line of development, but it's not true in the cognitive line of development. And you can be at a formal operational uh, universal level of, of cognitive development and have an extremely low level of moral development. These can all 
occur at different rates, at different levels. So I was giving examples of Nazi doctors who have very high cognitive intelligence and very low moral intelligence. So you can see, we call it a psychograph, but you can map out how far a person is in cognitive intelligence, how far they are in moral intelligence, how far they are in emotional intelligence, how in aesthetic intelligence and spiritual intelligence and, and, and so on. Let me ask a quick yeah. question here. You know how if you pull the leg of a stool, the, the other legs come along, or a table. They're, they're tightly correlated. Um, do you feel that with these different lines of development that there's any correlation whatsoever, even like a big stretchy rubber band? Or do you feel that they're completely unconnected, like a stool that's been sawed into pieces and you can pull one leg without influencing the others to, whatever, and to any degree? They tend to actually fall into three major groups and the lines in each group tend to develop within about a half stage of each other so there are the cognitive lines and those tend to be the highest developed on people and they tend to be necessary but not sufficient for the other multiple lines because if you, for example, if you're going to introspect and, and come up with an a answer to a question about moral, what's morally the right thing to do, you have to be cognitively aware of that moral line, or you won't even know what it is. So cognition has to be a little bit ahead of moral development. You won't be able to see it accurately. There are a few exceptions, but mostly the cognitive is necessary but not sufficient for all the other lines. And so it's often a stage or two higher than the other major two bundles of, of lines. The second major one is in some ways the most important, and it's what we call the self-related. These are all lines of development that relate to your self-sense, to your very identity, as a self. And so it includes things like Jane Lovinger's stages of ego development, which is very clearly self-development, but also moral development, Maslow's needs development. These all tend to develop within about a half stage of each other, but they can be one or two or three or four stages behind the cognitive bundle. And then there's another bundle that's just kind of loose and sometimes can almost stay at zero. And those are the lines that we call gifts or talents. So the things like mathematical intelligence, musical intelligence, uh, kinesthetic intelligence, which has to do with things like sport capacity, and sometimes artistic intelligence. There are people that are very high in cognitive intelligence. They're very high in self-development, uh, but they... You know, they couldn't play a piano if their life depended on it. And that Some seems to be fine. Really, I mean, who cares, you know, if Ramana couldn't shoot a, shoot a basket like uh, Stephen Curry or something. Exactly. But, but it, one would expect Ramana to have a fairly high level of moral development in keeping with his high level of consciousness. So, you know, some things seem to be more logically or correlated than others, and others are irrelevant to, to those. You're right. Now... The thing about, and all of these, the, the actual development of these 
lines through these given levels. That's what we call growing up. And it's a very specific capacity that humans have. And again, this is a capacity that literally wasn't discovered until around 100 years ago. There are now dozens of major models of psychological development that give their own little you know, tweaks and twists on exactly what development is, how it occurs, so on. The vast majority of them still have multiple lines, multiple intelligences, and they all have very similar levels of development. Um, I did one book called Integral Psychology, and I included over a hundred different developmental models, and I had charts on every one of them. And each of the charts included the stages that each of these hundred different models, how they saw these stages. And what was impressive is that there was a great deal of similarity between all of them. But they're, they're very specific, and they're things that you wouldn't guess if you were guessing. Nor can you see these levels of growing up by introspective. They're much more like grammar rules. People brought up in a particular culture, they learn to speak that culture's language quite accurately. They'll put subject and verb together correctly. They'll use adjectives and adverbs correctly. In other words, they're following the grammar rules of that language quite correctly, a large system of grammar rules. But if you ask them, what are those rules you're following and can you write them down? Almost nobody can do it. Most people don't even know they're following grammar rules very specifically, even though they're using them moment to moment. You and I are using them moment to moment right now. But we can introspect and we can't see these grammar rules at all. Well, the levels of growing up are just like that. Each level has a different kind of grammar pattern. So each level sees the world profoundly differently. And when you're at one of these levels and everybody is always at some level of growing up, you can't introspect and see that any more than you and I can introspect now and see the rules of grammar. It's just not going to happen. And so that's why it took so long for humanity to discover these levels of growing up. And the problem is, because these were only discovered about 100 years ago, that's much, much, much too recent to be included in any of the great religions or in any spiritual system worldwide. And that's why there's not a single religion or a single major spiritual system anywhere in the world today that has anything like growing up at all. A couple of questions here. One is saintliness is in popular culture associated with enlightenment, at least in some circles. You know, we have St. Teresa or St. Francis and we, uh, and, and in the East also there have been some, you know, very saintly figures and on the Maima and, and so on. Um, 
then on the other hand, you know, you have, like you mentioned, uh, Zen and the Art of War, where you uh, have people who are supposedly highly enlightened and deeply awake advocating very brutal practices in order to perpetuate Japanese culture or whatever. How do you explain that dichotomy? Could it be perhaps that there are levels of development which include the heart and others which can be very profound, yet which have not really begun to open up the territory of heart development? Well, you can postulate a particular, any particular line that you want. I've actually seen probably over 50 lines of development that various people have postulated. Most of them don't hold up for complex reasons. A line of development is a very specific type uh, of thing. And you do have to demonstrate that it does go through these various uh, stages and these stages can be, on the one hand, very simple. Some of them only have about four stages. Most of them have between around six to eight stages. So people like Lawrence Kohlberg in moral development, Maslow in needs development, Lovinger in ego development, Carol Gilligan in women's moral development. These are all levels of development in a particular line. And they're all very, very specific. And again, there's an enormous amount of agreement among them. But each level of development gives you a staggeringly different view. And that includes, of course, because you have these dozen multiple intelligences, that includes your moral development and your aesthetic development your emotional development, and so on. And so as these develop, because here's the, one of the final things that we learn that is, it just sort of changes everything. And that is that growing up and waking up, just like waking up and cleaning up, these are relatively independent. You can be very high in waking up and very low in growing up. You can be very high in growing up and never had a waking up experience in your entire life. These are two very different things. And unfortunately, because no religion has an understanding of growing up, nor cleaning up, for that matter, what they're fundamentally teaching if they're looking for ways to get to enlightenment or liberation, they're teaching what they've learned about how to help people wake up. But they're not teaching them anything about how to grow up because they know absolutely nothing about it. Nor are they teaching them anything about cleaning up because they know absolutely nothing about it. So wait a minute, now, if, if they the know disaster. nothing about it and, and if there isn't any correlation, then how is it that there does seem to be a, a fair abundance of, of uh, saintliness among the, the scriptural records of enlightened people, you know, full of compassion and, and great love and devotion, and there's all sorts of things like the Bhakti Sutras and all. There does seem to be some kind of correlation, but there are, there are flagrant violations of it, you know, nonetheless. Well, that's the point. And, and when, when all the traditions have some forms of, of ethical guidelines, 
That's not what I mean when I say growing up. Well, people who actually embodied those guidelines, not just guidelines, but people who seem to be spontaneously living a saintly life who are also apparently enlightened. There, there seems to be you know, a fair number of those people that you can recount if you read all the stories and the Puranas and all that. But the problem with that is when all of those stories were created and they had certain waking up, when they talked about, well, let me first give a very simple version of growing up and you'll start to see the problem. Uh, we can use Carol Gilligan's version in this case. She found four major stages that all women go through in their moral development. We also find that men go through similar stages, but in a different voice. Her first stage she called selfish. And we also call that egocentric. The woman cares only for herself. The second stage she called care because the woman extends care from herself to a group. Now this group or tribe or clan or a nation is, is just one major group. It's not all groups because that would be too big a step for, for this developmental. You have to take it one step at a time. And so the first step is expanding your care from just yourself to a larger group of people. So this is called not egocentric, which was the first stage. This is called ethnocentric because it's focused on a particular group. And ethnocentric means just that. It's prejudice to that one group because that's the only group it can identify with. That's the only group that it can feel has the one true way. And, and so it's notorious that virtually every ancient culture felt all other cultures were barbarians, were savages, that were not really up to them. And this included people that were doing waking up. They felt the same way about these others. So they demonstrated care and compassion to theirs, not to others. The next stage beyond care, Gilligan called universal care. That's where the woman extends care to all groups, to all human beings, and attempts to treat all of them fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And in her final stage was integrated, where the woman learns to integrate both masculine and feminine forms into her being. Now, historically, the first time that humanity went from ethnocentric, and by the way, ethnocentric was the first time that humanity started to develop paths of waking up. This is where we got Zen and Vedanta and Sufism and Christian contemplative, mystical forms of prayer, cloud of unknowing, Upanishads, and so on. These were all at ethnocentric stages of development. So you could take somebody like a Christian fundamentalist who had had a profound waking up experience. And by the way, history is full of them. Uh, almost all of the early Christian saints that were so full of love and care were at ethnocentric stages of growing up. Even though they were having profound experiences of waking up. Remember, these are now two different things. So on the, on the ethnocentric side, the Christian fundamentalist has a profound experience of waking up, 
But he's convinced, and it's an authentic version of waking up. History's full of them. But he's convinced, as a fundamentalist, that the only other kind of people that can have this experience are those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. If you don't do that, you can't have this experience. Sorry. That's not world-centric. So you think that if that experience is genuine, it doesn't tend to soften them up a little bit and make them a little bit more universal in their perspective? Can you really have that experience full-blown and maintain that adamant fundamentalism? Every saint in history did. Are you sure? That's a bit of a blanket statement. I, don't know. I, I can't argue with you on that because I, I can't think of any exceptions off the top of my head. But I know in my own experience, I've become much more broad-minded over the years um, just through my own growing experience. And enabled even doing this show i'm able to talk to such a wide variety of people and and there's a quote from you someplace here about um i have one major rule everybody is right more specifically everybody including me has some important pieces of truth and all those pieces need to be honored cherished and included in a more gracious spacious and compassionate embrace i feel like personally i've grown in that kind of um, perspective over the years and if, if me then why not you know, some of these great sages and saints. Well, very simple. Are... You live in a world that's global in its dimensions. You're fully aware, not of just egocentric and ethnocentric stages of development. That's all somebody 2,000 years ago had. There were no world-centric stages of development. They hadn't come into, they hadn't emerged in evolution yet. They didn't emerge until around the Western Enlightenment. And so at that time, in a, about a 100-year period, from around 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed for the first time in all of history. None of these previous cultures that had waking up and had saints that were compassionate and loving and caring, Buddhist monasteries had slaves. St. Paul recommends to slaves, love Jesus Christ and obey your master. These are deeply racist organizations that are having waking up experiences. And when they say compassion, they mean only within the limited tribe that they feel can have that experience. And that's the problem. We see that for at least 3,000 years until the modern era. And slavery was embraced by every single one of them. So was sexism. Every one of them were patriarchal. Did waking up help that? No. There's even, and it still lasts to today. I heard a Theravadan Buddhist practitioner the other day, somebody accused Buddhism of being sexist. And he says, oh, that's just not true. I can prove it. Even a woman can be reborn as a man. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, you're not sexist. It, it, that this is a huge discovery that we made only about a decade ago. That waking up and growing up are essentially different. Now, yes, in certain ways they interact. Of course, everything interacts with with everything but they can be separated and they tend to run on different tracks and if you look at it there are actually different types of practices that you do when you are trying to wake up versus when you're trying to grow up they're not the same practicing this won't automatically 
increase this. And practicing this won't automatically increase this. And so that's what's so important. The crucial item, as I see it, is that today for the first time, literally the first time in history, we have a chance to put together waking up and growing up and cleaning up all in one package. And we should start to say, to help everybody realize, if you're going to join a path and it doesn't include something on all three of those, you're going to get fucked. You are going to end up in a bad, bad way because one of these is going to go sour because you're completely unaware of it and it's going to be operating in the nasty way that it does. And at some point, it's going to bite you and you're going to be extremely unhappy. And as you know, that incredibly common. You have people that are fairly well spiritually, you know, uh, evolved. And then they get into financial, sexual power, screw ups, because they're at a fairly low level of growing up. If somebody's at a world-centric universal care, world-centric stage, they are not going to morally infringe on a student. It's, it's impossible from that stage. That stage categorically hates that kind of behavior. But we don't train for that stage in spiritual practice. We train only for how to transcend the individual self. We don't train for, wait, how do you actually help grow that individual self? Even though you're going to transcend it and you're going to realize reality of ultimate oneness, you still have to express that oneness to whatever self you have. And if your self is at a low egocentric stage of development, and if you have a massive shadow element and you try to express an otherwise authentic enlightenment, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to make it sound ridiculous. You're going to act ridiculous. And every follower who comes within 10 feet of you is going to say, well, if that's enlightenment, I'll take less of that. Thank you very much. Yeah, either they're going to say that or they're going to hang on for years saying, well, I don't understand it. And this guy seems crazy, but he seems so bright and so amazing. And he's got such darshan and I better I better not leave or I'm going to blow it. You know, and then people, you know, 20 years later think, oh, my God, you know, how could I have been so gullible? You're exactly right. That is probably the major unfortunate path that the majority of people end up taking and they end up wasting a life. Yeah. So with your overview of the spiritual landscape, um, what percentage, how would you break it down in terms of all the various teachers and teachings and groups and whatnot in terms of the degree to which they all incorporate all three legs, waking up, cleaning up, growing up? It's very, very slim. And the main reason is that, as I was pointing out, the waking up path, consists largely of a series of direct experiences that a person has. And so if you look at like, and then all the maps that the traditions have drawn are maps of those experiences. So if you look at St. Teresa's seven interior castles, she's just giving you a direct, you know, and then I experienced this, and then I experienced this, and then I experienced this light pouring down. I mean, you're aware of it. When you have one of those experiences, you know it, you're aware of it. If you have an experience of being 
one with the entire universe in love and, and peace, you'll know it. Unlike, that's waking up. Unlike growing up, when you're at a particular level or stage of growing up, and I use this as a model just as an example, uh, the stages that Gene Gepser gave for the major stages of development. Remember, there are dozens of different names for these levels, even though if you look at them, you can see the great similarity in all of them. But he called these major stages archaic, magic, mythic, which means mythic literal, um, mythic rational, pluralistic, and integral or integrated. When you're at any one of those stages, you have no idea you're at that stage and that that stage is helping to interpret how you view any experience you have, including a waking up experience. And that's why you can be, and we actually have empirical studies on this recently, you can be at virtually any stage of growing up. You can be at magic or mythic or rational or pluralistic or integral. And you can have any experience of waking up from the lowest to the very highest. Those, again, are independent. So you can be, though, at a relatively low, like I say, ethnocentric stage of development and have a complete experience all the way up through full enlightenment. And we also have empirical tests on that. One of the really telling ones was a group of researchers took a large number of people, and this was a subjective uh, choice, but they took a large number of people that the most people that they talked to felt were fairly enlightened, fairly highly evolved people uh, that were teachers or just really, really advanced in their, in their spiritual awareness in their waking up, in other words. And then they gave them tests of about a dozen tests that are standard tests used to grade where you are on a multiple intelligence of growing up. So a cognitive test, an emotional uh, intelligence test, an aesthetic test, and so on. And these more enlightened people that took all of these tests got absolutely average all the way across the board. They scored no higher than people that had never had a waking up experience in their life. They're two different processes entirely. And that's what's so extraordinary because both of them are needed because your waking up experience will be interpreted according to the stage of growing up that you're at. So, is this very common nowadays? Is this understanding out there? No. And the reason is that the actual ingredients of growing up and cleaning up, as I said, weren't discovered until about 100 years ago. Most forms of meditation, the great religious systems, are 1,000 or 2,000 years old. So this was much too recent to be included in, in these original spiritual systems. I guarantee you, if somebody like the Buddhists or even somebody like the New Testament writers, if they were aware of the stages of growing up, they would have been all over them because it governs how you interpret 
your waking up experience. And they would want you to experience it from the highest possible interpretive stance. They don't want you experiencing it from a selfish, egocentric, ethnocentric, Nazi level. (laughs) But they weren't aware of it, so these all got left out. So only about 100 years ago, we discovered them. And it was really only about a decade or two ago that we actually realized this fact and how it fit together. I mean, the data was all lying out there and they were all sort of doing their separate thing. And a few of us came together and said, wait a minute, that governs this and that. Jesus, we have to put this all together or it's going to be a disaster. So it's only been a decade or two that this has been fairly well known. We do, That said, there are, I would say, at least several dozen, uh, I think, the very best spiritual communities you can find anywhere that now use a system that incorporates waking up and growing up and cleaning up, a few other things we call showing up and opening up, but those are minor, but other items. But they are using them, and without uh, a single exception so far, um, they're ecstatic, they report much better results, and they're reporting that the results stick longer. Because you can have a waking up, and then if you're really low level of growing up, it'll just drag it down, drag it down. And if you have a shadow, it'll you know come up and start screwing with it, and screwing with it, and so on. So I'm encouraged. I think people are coming to appreciate this more and more. You know, um, about I don't know. These days, you hear everybody talking about integration, and uh, you know, people are getting fed up with gurus behaving badly and there's the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement and all that. So it seems, seems to be something in the air. And I think you articulate it well. It's something that's very right. timely. Right. What you're saying. Um, there's a couple of questions that have come in uh, from people that are related sure. to what we've been saying. And I also have one of my own, which I won't forget. Uh, the first is from Maurice in Guatemala who asks, are the levels of intelligence of the different lines predetermined? Also, you were saying a minute ago how you can't really tell what right. level you're at. Um, also, also, Maurice asks, who has the authority to determine if we are actually evolving in any given line? So let's have you answer his first. Um, there's, um, are these um, levels fixed? No. If you go back 150,000 years ago, when humans were moving sort of, or even a million years ago, when humans were moving from great apes into what Gebser called archaic, in other words, the, first, the very earliest forms of human, recognizably human being, there wasn't more than essentially just the bottom line of development. That's all there was. There was an archaic level and little bumps of various types of intelligences that were, that were starting to evolve because human beings would run into areas that posed a question. And the more they ran into that area that posed a question, the more they developed, uh, they evolved ways to address that question. So if you wanted to run into something and you're looking over there and, and, and you want to know if it's raining outside, somebody would say, well, I think it's raining outside. Will you check? Somebody would go and look out of the hut or out of the sky, and they would say, yes, it is raining. So you check. So you're honing your cognitive intelligence. Cognitive intelligence helps tell you what's true. 
So it, it checks and says, yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. And so that started to develop at the first level. And then there could be also things like emotional intelligence. Women in particular started to develop that because in those early stages, men were hunting. Women were generally at home caring for infants. That would change. But at those early days, that tended to be the way it was. And so women had to be very nuanced to every single emotional twitch and twinge of an infant. And that's how their emotional intelligence started to develop, to be very careful to that. Men, on the other hand, so women ended up with something like 28 different degrees of emotional intelligence. Men were just out there hunting. They ended up developing two degrees of emotional intelligence, forward and reverse. That was, that was kind of that. But emotional intelligence started developing as you started running into uh, other dangerous areas, other areas of specific questioning. The different lines of development started to develop. From about the earliest archaic to about 150,000 BC, at that point, the magic stage started to occur. And so now we had two levels of development that the lines could go through. And if somebody stayed at an archaic stage, they were looked at as being a little bit retarded or maybe a little bit slow. To be an adult, you had to make one major transformation from archaic to magic. Then within about another 100,000 years, 130,000 years, the mythic started to develop. And that wasn't hunting, that was farming. And so another level was added. And by the way, as this was happening and levels were being added, everybody was still born at square one. That's still true today. Even if we're at a rational or pluralistic, fairly high stage of development in Western culture, everybody's still born at square one. They're still born at archaic. They're still born at impulsive, at power-driven stages, at stages driven by aggression. So they're still going to want to form gangs. They're still going to want to create criminal acts because everybody's having to move through these lower stages of growing up before you get into higher stages of growing up like care and universal care, and then you want to do less of that. But it'll always be a problem because you're always born at square one. But no, they're not fixed and they keep growing. So we're at a kind of integral stage right now, but there's no reason that there can't be higher stages in the future. And that's what makes it interesting. And it also makes it interesting that if you're at a relatively high stage of growing up now, then you really are. The way you act today is going to help determine the structure of the level of consciousness that everybody gets tomorrow. And you really can have a hand in that. So I sort of make this up as a new kind of Kantian imperative, which is behave as if the way you're acting will become the way everybody will act tomorrow. It'll again change 
down the road and there'll be another one and that'll change and there'll be another one. But right now at the leading edge where most people listening to this conversation, frankly, are at a leading integral stage of growing up or they wouldn't find this conversation interesting. They would have turned off hours ago. So if you're still here, still listening, or if you still listen to, to good old um, bat on a, on a regular basis, you're at that edge. So take it seriously. You're actually helping form the structures and levels of consciousness that will be laid down tomorrow and delivered tomorrow. So it's a big responsibility. So, um, so no, we're not, they're not fixed. They continue to grow. And again, you can be relatively differently evolved. You can be very high in some lines, medium in other lines, and very low in other lines. And as for how to determine it, um, it, there are several different ways to go with that question, but one I'll just say is that each of these multiple intelligences have one or two different types of tests that are fairly accurate at helping you determine what stage you're at in each of these um, lines of development. So if you're really curious about that, you can uh, get online, Google around, uh, and, and find a number of places where you can actually take tests if you want to and figure out where you are. So, or you can read my books and, and, and sort of pick it up from there, get a start on it. There are lots of other books out there too, though, and, and I'd recommend pretty much all of them. So in the last two minutes, you made two points that actually segue into the other two questions I wanted to ask. Um, the first one was you're saying, you know, act in, according to how you act, you're impacting society and society is going to change accordingly if enough people act this way. And, um, you know, that um, tends to contradict something you seem to be saying, which is that there's no real correlation between your level of consciousness and, and your action, but maybe not. But we'll give you a chance to respond to that. But, but one thing I want to throw in here before you do is that um, a lot of people say that, you know, a spiritual awakening on a mass scale is kind of the world's greatest hope. You know, it's the one thing which is causal or fundamental enough to possibly offset the plethora of problems, any one of which could do us in, you know, from global warming to genetic modification to everything, all these different things that, you know, by developing enlightenment, we're getting right down to the bedrock uh, uh, and we are affecting change more fundamentally and more powerfully than we could at any more superficial level. Um, so, However, if if that sort of spiritual awakening wasn't even able to change the personality of so many people who have attained it, you know, they've they've stayed at fairly, you know, archaic levels of behavior. How can it have any hope to change it the can. world? Here's the problem. Again, simply having a waking up experience can happen at virtually any level of growing up. And that means uh, part of the problem with spiritual teachers that, you know, they put on this facade of loving care and outgoingness and wonder. But, but, but the really bad ones, you find out they've got a core of really just caring for themselves. Now, how can that happen when you have a waking up experience? 
Well, waking up gives you, it undercuts, it doesn't completely dissolve because you still have to have a conventional self. You still interact with the world. If somebody calls your name, you'll still answer. That's the conventional self. That still stays. What happens with waking up is that you find a bigger awareness that you're identified with in a stronger way. Um, so-called true self or supreme identity. The Sufis call it the supreme identity. It's an identity with everything that's arising moment to moment. And just taken in itself, that experience, we would tend to say, yes, that's what we need to help with global warming. People have to experience Gaia as their own body. Then they'll stop pissing all over it. They'll start taking care of it just as they would their own body. And that's true if they're at an integral level of growing up. If they're at lower levels of growing up, if they're at archaic or magic or ethnocentric, mythic, or merely um, a beginning world-centric, they're going to end up acting and expressing that waking up through those lower levels in terms of their actual actions. And that's why somebody who's really has a deep egocentric conventional self is going to be primarily the person that does get caught up in sexual abuse of their students, financial abuse, um, all sorts of authoritarian, even fascist types of actions. Even though when they sit down to do darshan, they're open and loving and caring. And sure, they are. But how do they act? They act like egocentric fascists. And that's not going to help global warming. When the first thing that we've learned about distinguishing waking up and growing up and cleaning up is that you can no longer just say, hey, we need just one of those to make everything better. Because, by the way, there are very large groups of people that champion just one of those. They don't know about the others. So there are people that are still out there saying, it's shadow problems. It's all the hidden shadows that humans have that make them hate and make them greedy and make them fearful. And if we don't clear that up, we're never going to clear up all the disasters in global capitalism and crony capitalism and global warming. We've got to clean our shadows up or we're going to hell. And that group believes that deeply. There's another group that believes in growing up. That, wait a minute, if you look at the data, um, whether it's amount of aggression, amount of criminality, amount of uh, drug abuse, serious drug abuse, uh, if you look at prejudice, racism and sexism, all of those tend to happen in the lower stages of growing up. And as you get to the higher stages of growing up, those tend to go away. It's from the higher stages of growing up that you get things like wishing to stop oppression and increase inclusivity and make diversity an important thing. Those values don't come 
from the lower four or five stages of development. Those values don't emerge until age six or seven, ever. And so if you don't have growing up, you can just forget what inclusivity and lack of oppression and all of that. That's why it's only a higher stage that slavery was finally outlawed. That was only 100 years ago, for Christ's sakes. We've been doing this for almost a million years, and we only figured that out 100 years ago when we had already figured out waking up and we had experience of being one with everything and enlightenment. That didn't stop slavery. That didn't stop the patriarchy because they were at lower levels of growing up, no matter how high they were doing with waking up. So we're past the stage now where we can say, just give us waking up. Great traditions had waking up and racism and sexism and slaves. That didn't help. We need waking up and growing up, and we need higher stages of growing up, higher stages of waking up, and yes, cleaning up shouldn't be forgotten. But anything that leaves out any of those in any of our major problems is not going to work. And all we have to do is look at the world today. It's still not working, and we've still never taken an approach that combines them all. We're taking approaches that are extremely important, but we're fragmenting them off and just doing them one at a time. And it doesn't work. So as I understand you, uh, uh, an ideal spiritual practice would include all three simultaneously, uh, not sequentially, uh, that none of the three are more fundamental or influential than any of the others that uh, they can, uh, that if they're developed in isolation, uh, you can actually create more problems than you're solving, and um, that you know you really just need to develop all three in the most effective way you can simultaneously for balanced growth and and for safe yes. growth. We could say exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's what's so extraordinary about it is that in ways that we're just starting to figure out, because again, this specific fact of having to use them all together was only discovered about a decade or two ago. So this is still a relatively new idea, but every single thing we've done to look at it supports it in a, in a extremely strong fashion. And the people that sit down and look at it, really study the data and evidence, um, I would say at least 80% of them uh, have, tended to, have tended to agree. So that's what we want to start to do. And if we do that, then, and we actually start developing systems that do manage to include these important elements, then that might be a system that really could be embraced by a fair number of people, even very intelligent, educated people. And when they start, you know, getting a sense of, the enormous amount of freedom that comes from waking up, the incredible sense of fullness that comes from growing up, and the incredible sense of just clean of, of, of cleanness in a sense that comes from cleaning up. This makes religion uh, an absolutely attractive 
package for people. It's not, oh, you just have to drag yourself to church and listen to some idiotic sermon for 20 minutes that will just bore you to tears. And then you sing some nice songs and give some money and then go home. That's not a very exciting package. Um, it's much, much. Do you, do you think the uh, traditional religions are going to be revived and incorporate all three of these? Uh, or do you think that really they are things of the past and there are going to be new new forms of spiritual pursuit that will start afresh and incorporate all three? I think uh, almost any of those could happen. Um, Unity Church, for example, which is, I think, mm-hmm. about the third or fourth largest church in America, um, mm. a couple of years ago, it officially adopted the aqua integral framework to put its teachings in. And it created 12 test communities where they started working on how to get an integral spirituality across. And that included waking up, growing up, and cleaning up. Incidentally, the first thing that they found was that in order to start teaching these sort of broader topics, which really for most people, that's a lot of new stuff to learn. It's just a lot. Wait wait a minute. There's how many stages of growing up and there's waking (laughs) up and wait, there's and cleaning up. But they found that all these colors, these quadrants and all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But they found that people were inherently interested and they started doing it very enthusiastically. And the first thing they ran into as they started to transform was their old shadow elements, particularly coming from, you know, sort of fundamentalist Bibles saying, oh, you can't do this or this is bad or what do you mean Jesus Christ isn't the only world spiritual teacher? Uh, By the way, the Catholic Church in Vatican II finally admitted that, quote, this is paraphrasing, comparable spiritual salvation can be had in other religions. So after 2,000 years, they went from their own ethnocentric, we've got the one and only way, only Jesus Christ is it. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to burn in hell forever, to saying, uh, Oops, other religions can give you the same salvation. That was a big, big jump for them. Most, most religions haven't made Wait till E.T. lands on the White House lawn, and we discover there's a trillion inhabited planets in the known universe, and they're going to have to take a bigger jump. It's going to get bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger for sure. So, so they're doing that now, and they're working. They actually give like a six-month shadow workshop to help people integrate stuff as it comes up and then they start moving into some uh, some of the other topics so it, it that's an example of an established church wanting to change uh we do have um uh, lots of uh groups like zen groups and vedanta groups mormon groups that are simply taking what they teach, but then adding all the new material. They're adding growing up and they're adding cleaning up and they're adding showing up. Um, and they're working to make those fit with the, um, with the practices of waking up that, that they already have. And many of those are working 
exquisitely. I mean, just exquisitely. So, so it's encouraging to see this happen. And one thing that we do know is that the evidence for each of these areas, the evidence for waking up, the evidence for cleaning up, and the evidence for cleaning up is overwhelming. There are thousands of researchers that have looked into all of these and found an enormous amount of evidence supporting them. So this isn't something that we're just making up. It's not something like, you know, Jock Derrida's deconstruction that just, you know, one person dreamt up and is supposed to change things. This is being done by, by hundreds and thousands and, and over, over historical times, it's been done by millions of people. The, the evidence is overwhelming. And so it's just a matter of putting it together. Yeah. You tell your readers repeatedly that, um, you know, reality is mysterious and impossible to map perfectly. This is by a, the a way, re- I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, this is a reader's question or a listener's question. Uh, but then you suggest a map and, and you're brilliant at the, uh, working out these maps, including color-coded charts showing levels of development. Sure. And, um, you know, I've heard, the questioner has heard that your followers are always trying to figure out where they and others are in this system. In fact, a few minutes ago, you alluded to looking it up on Google and taking a test. Um, so, you know, any philosophy, including integral theory, can be overthought, resulting in concept addiction. Do you worry about that with your students? Sure. Um, and I would say it's a problem uh, with about 30%. I tend to criticize it a lot because it's, it's one of you know, a handful of things that I think you have to really, really, really be careful about. It doesn't change the fact that each of these areas are there and they do unfold in the way that they do. And so how you relate to that is up to you. And, but it's still there. It's still operating. It's still hitting you day in and day out constantly. And you can take it into account or you can just ignore it and let it have its way with you. But it is having its way with you. These things are operating, and they're operating right now. So, so again, you can either be aware of that or you can ignore that. I think by far the better way is, of course, to take it into account and attempt to come, come to terms with it. What you don't want to do is reify it. I mean, if you look at the you know, so-called levels of development, I've made it very clear that those are much more things like bands in a rainbow. You know, they're very loose and merged together. They're not rigid like rungs in a ladder that you just have to step up on. And people, certain of their multiple intelligences are very high on the ladder. Certain are very meteor. Others are very low. They're switching sort of all the time, they're constant up and down and going and flowing. But there is, if you keep growing and developing, there is a subtle but continuing growth and increase in the degree of sophistication, the degree of maturity and development that you have that each of these goes through. 
And it's not just that. It also just using it as an objective system. Uh, you can look at things happening in the world, and it explains a staggering amount of material that otherwise seems just stupid or silly or crazy. It explains culture wars really well. It explains international politics really well, and so on. So, so there's a broad spectrum of uses that you can have for something like this. You brought out a point in, I think it was your Integral Buddhism book, which I've been reading the last couple of nights, that to, or maybe it was an article you wrote, to experience enlightenment in today's world is not to become any freer than the ancient sages, since emptiness doesn't change, but it is to become fuller since the world has grown in complexity. I found that fascinating. It's, it's, as, though, it's as though in a more diverse, complex, dynamic world, right. enlightenment, if you can attain it, is actually going to be more interesting in a way yeah. than it would be in a, in a much more primitive world. Right. It started out, and the idea was <clears throat> there was a world of samsara, and there was a world of nirvana, and you had to get off the world of samsara, just gone off of it, get rid of it, and embrace just the world of nirvana. And that was what Gautama Buddha originally preached. And that's what Buddhists practice for six to eight hundred years. And then a gentleman by the name of Nagarjuna came along. And he said, wait a minute, there's something not quite right about that. Nirvana is real. Samsara is real. But they're not split. There's a deeper unity underlying them that makes them one, or what he technically called non-dual. They're not two. So the Heart Sutras say that which is emptiness is not other than form. That which is form is not other than emptiness. That meant exactly that which is samsara is not other than nirvana. That which is nirvana is not other than samsara. And so with that, we got a whole switch in ideal from an airhat who promises to get into nirvana and get off the world of samsara forever to the bodhisattva who promised never to get lost in just nirvana, but to find the unity of nirvana and samsara and to therefore stay in both of them as he helped individuals in samsara gain their own enlightenment which was to realize the profound unity of nirvana and samsara. And so being able to work those both together, realizing that you're not looking for a kingdom that's not of this earth. You're looking for a heaven on earth. You're looking for where heaven and earth are not two. And to make that the paradise, that's a completely different change. And that's a change that has an enormous nobility to it and an enormous care. And that's why compassion became so big to Mahayana Buddhism. Um, it was said that even Plato, who originally had you know just the shadows in the cave and then the light outside the cave, and the idea was get rid of the shadows, find the light. According to Lovejoy and the great chain of being, Plato then, in his final form, said that shadows were actually just a manifestation of light, and you were to find the unity 
between the two of them. This is something we tend to see happen around the world, that there is first the idea that the manifest world is broken, it's fallen, it's alienated, it's shot through with original sin, it's marked by dukkha, and it's inherently suffering, every bit of it. And your goal is to get the hell off of that realm entirely and find a realm that was free of all of that. And finding that freedom was your religious salvation. That's what salvation meant, was getting off of this broken, horrifying, suffering world. Well, life tended to be that way. I mean, a toothache could kill you. There was a good chance childbirth was going to kill you. The average lifespan was maybe 30 years, you know, so you couldn't blame people for it. <laughs> absolutely not. And that's what's, that's what's so interesting, that when everybody from Nagarjuna to Plato to Plotinus started saying, wait, these are actually two different aspects of one underlying wholeness. Our job is to find the wholeness not to latch on to just one half of that broken whole. And everything started changing at that point in the waking up dimension. And that's profound. That's in a sense still where it is, is to discover this non-dual reality. But then part of that non-dual reality, of course, is how we express it. Do we express it through egocentric modes, through ethno centric modes, through world-centric modes, or through integrated modes. That's our choice. We can do it at either. And they're all profoundly different. And the lower ones offer horrifying problems. And the upper ones offer an enormous amount of um, uh, integration and wholeness that much more accurately reflects the non-dual unity of, of ultimate reality itself. So this is one of the things that's really important to help bring that kind of non-dual reality, which is ever-present, but to have that realization occur of that ever-presence and interpreted then from an integral, balanced fashion. And that seems to be about the best that we can hope for nowadays. Yeah, I think that the two perspectives offer very interesting implications as to what God is. I mean, the one is is like, you know, God sort of really blew it in creating this creation, or he's some kind of a sadist who just wants to torture us and to make us want to get out of here. Yeah. And that the main point of being here is to get out of here. And And the second one is more like, you know, what a marvelous creation. It's divine. It's the divine play. There's so much joy, joy and creativity and infinite possibilities and yeah. wonderful things and all yeah. that. And it's sort of the divine having created the creation for the sake of Leela, not for the sake of some kind of uh, torment. Right. Absolutely. And that's a big change. That's a big change. And you find it east and west, not just one or the other. It's a much more pleasant perspective to live with. It is. It is. <laughs> Here's an interesting question that will shift our gears a little bit. Do you think that there will be an acceptance of replicated inner experience as a process of scientific investigation? The, the psychiatric community trusts subjective reports from patients to modify pharmaceutical products. So why not trust the subjective reports of yogis to suggest therapies to help map out realities more subtle than scientific instruments are capable of detecting? 
Um, I think that's possible in a sense um, up to a certain point. And then it leaves some things out. Um, The traditions themselves tend to differentiate between what they call relative states and ultimate states. So if you look at, for example, some of the Neoplatonic traditions, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, if you look at Vedanta Hinduism, you find the same five major states of consciousness that are given. And these five, by the way, are the five states that when you study them one time in a row, become five major stages of meditation. And somebody like Daniel P. Brown has done an enormous amount of research um, now with over 20 different meditation systems showing that most of them go through essentially these five major stages of development. And I've agreed with that for some 20 years. Um, Dustin DePerna, by the way, wrote a couple books, uh, Evolution's Alley and Streams of Wisdom, where he points out that these these five states that I recommend and, and that this researcher has discovered, Daniel P. Brown, and shows that they're exactly similar um, and, and how fundamental they are. I think there are several other ways you can talk about these states, but these five are, are central and, and are pretty important. And the three relative states, there are three relative states and two ultimate states. And the three relative states are states that exist in space and time. Uh, they have temporal duration. They have boundaries. They come, they stay a while, and they go. And they're classically called gross, subtle, and causal, which uh, examples of which are always given as waking state, dream state, and deep dreamless or formless state. And these are relative. You know, each comes, stay for a while and go. The next one comes, stays for a while and goes. Next one comes, stays for a while and go. Then there are two ultimate states. These are states that are ever-present. They're fully present right now. And one's called Turiya, and one's called Turiyatida. And Turiya is Sanskrit. The word Turiya is Sanskrit that just literally means the fourth. And it's called the fourth because it's the fourth state after the first three states of gross, subtle, and causal or waking, dreaming, deep sleep, that's three. And then Turiya is the fourth. But Turiya is an ultimate state. And then beyond Turiya is Turiyatita. And that's what Turiyatita means, beyond Turiya. So Turiya is just pure witnessing. It's not identified with anything. It's a radical, ever-present awareness not any content of awareness, just pure awareness. And it, it's, it's not this, not that, nete, nete, not that, not that, not that. And in Turiyatita, it's a sense of radical freedom because you're free of, of, of any identification with anything. 
you're completely free of, 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 of any and all things. So the attitude is like, I have sensations, but I'm not those sensations. I have feelings, but I'm not those feelings. I have thoughts, but I'm not those thoughts. I'm just their pure awareness. So that's pure Turiya, pure witness, sometimes called true self or real self. And then when you get to Turiya Tita, all of a sudden the witness, which is standing back from everything and witnessing it impartially without any pain or any attraction or any desire or anything, all of a sudden the witness just tends to dissolve into everything that it's witnessing. And there's just a pure oneness. So you no longer see the mountain, you are the mountain. You no longer see the clouds, you are the clouds. You no longer feel the earth, you are the earth. That's the state of pure non-dual oneness or pure unity. And that sometimes ultimate divine unity, divine consciousness, and so on. And so it's when we get to that ultimate state in which everything is arising and it's the ground of absolutely everything, that state is very, very hard to pin down in brain processes or brain waves. The relative states, you can definitely do it. I mean, you can already take, for example, waking, dream, and deep sleep, which tend to be things like beta waves for waking, theta waves for dreaming, and delta waves for deep sleep. And you can measure those out. We talked about me stopping brain waves where I stopped all beta waves of waking state. I stopped all theta waves of dreaming. And there was just delta witnessing deep dreamless sleep waves. And those can all be measured. And, and we're going to get increasingly sophisticated measures of those relative types of alternative states. I think Richie Davidson at Wisconsin is doing a lot of this. The Dalai Lama gave him access to pretty much every meditating Tibetan monk in the world for him to investigate and research on. I think they were the first to discover things like gamma waves for, for monks that have been practicing Tonglen or compassion meditation for 20 years. They showed massive amounts of gamma waves. So I think those kinds of things are going to increase. And we actually call them the upper right quadrant, which are things like brain waves and neurophysiology, uh, neurophysiological connections and so on. And upper left, which we call the, the states of consciousness themselves, the actual experience of consciousness itself. And I think that's going to increase. I think as you get to the ultimate states, particular Turiatita, these are incredibly difficult to pin down because what researchers can maintain, for example, if they're studying, let's say, theta dream states and they track the theta waves in the brain when somebody's dreaming 
that can be done fairly straightforwardly. But when you get to an ultimate state of consciousness, the experience, the phenomenological experience you have when you experience something like that radically ultimate state is that that's a ground that has been present throughout all manifest history. It goes all the way back to the Big Bang and before. That's By the way, that's what, if there is something like spirit, that's what you would expect it to do. You wouldn't expect a real spirit of the universe to be produced by your brain. <laughs> what kind of spirit is that? The spirit's supposed to make the brain. It's not produced by the brain. That would be ridiculous. It would also mean that there was no spirit in the universe until about a million years ago when human brains came along. That's all backwards. That doesn't work. When you get to that ultimate state, that actually, if you're looking at how certainly the traditions would view it, the brain exists in that state. That state doesn't exist in the brain. So it starts to get into some really funky kinds of areas that scientists just don't know what to do with. So at that point, it starts to get a little weird. But all the other states, yeah, I think we're going to have very, very clear and specific maps of those. And it will be important to continue to remember that the map is not the territory. And that goes for all the maps I've made as well. They're not the territory. So, and we don't want to confuse the map of the territory. But at the same time, we don't want to have a completely screwed up map. So, a screwed up map is a map that gives you a spiritual awakening and tells you nothing about spiritual growing up and spiritual cleaning up. That's a bad map. That's a broken map. But once you recognize those are there, it doesn't mean you can just learn that map and know it. It means you have to go out and experience waking up. You have to realize your radical oneness with everything. And you have to actually grow to the stages of growing up, or at least get into some higher stages that will get you out of ethnocentric, power-driven stages. And if you've got some sort of master shadow, don't just learn about it. Do something about it. So these are the areas that, that increasingly we want to work on. And the more good maps we have of those, great, the better. I think maps are important. I mean, when Lewis and Clark went across the country, even though there weren't any roads, if they had had good maps that at least told them where the mountains were, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble. That's the and, truth. You know, and I think that um, spiritual seekers, if, if, the, if the territory is more clearly understood, you know, if we, if we could have a modern GPS version of, of, spiritual, uh, of the spiritual territory versus the Lewis and Clark version, right. then I, I think people would be able to navigate much more efficiently and with far fewer mishaps. And, and I can relate to that. My great-great-great-great-grandfather was Lewis. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Is he the one who killed himself or the he other He was. Guy? He was the genius who killed himself. So I'm trying to live up to that. 
<laughs> at some point. Bunch of questions have come in for people. This this one is from Stephen in Chicago. I think he's alluding to Shakespeare's "As You Like It." It Says, uh, "What's the point of all this development if it's just a stage and we are merely players? Why take it so seriously?" Uh, Depends on your capacity to endure suffering. If you can endure and carry and be beaten up daily by enormous amounts of suffering, fine, no worry. If, on the other hand, you get tired of being flayed and bruised and battered and broken, then you might want to take up steps to do something about it. And the good news is there are many steps that can cure those problems. And there's a good reason to do that if and only if you're tired of being tortured. It's a good answer. I mean, it's rather glib to say, oh, this is only a dream. But, you know, I mean, the dream can get pretty nasty. And if, if, if you can be lib- if, if you can make it a more enjoyable dream and yet also be liberated, not just get caught up in the dream, yeah. why not? Uh, History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. Yeah. Okie dokie. Here's, here's one from uh, Sam in London. He says, uh, since integral theory is based on Sri Aurobindo's works, what do you think about his work on evolution of the supramental consciousness? What is supramental consciousness from your point of view, and, and does it really affect evolution of the material body? Yeah, um, just a little technical tweak. It's common to say that uh, integral theory is based on Aurobindo. Um, because he called his work uh, Integral Yoga. But it it really wasn't based uh, on Aurobindo. And a great deal of uh, of the original framework had been created um, before I I actually ran across Aurobindo. Of course, when I did, I loved him, just loved him. But I also found that most of the central topics that we were both talking about um, I had already included because I had already studied, you know, a hundred uh, systems from around the world. But Aurobindo was very special and absolutely brilliant. And I learned a lot of new things from him, and, and I'm deeply grateful. He is he's one in a small handful of truly, truly great spiritual, philosophical sages and not only did he have a kind of intuitive understanding, well, he had a very good understanding of levels of, of uh, consciousness and development. And he did see it going um, up into, and these are some terms that I borrowed from him. And, and this was in the growing up line, not just the states of consciousness waking up on, um, moving through things like overmind, and supermind. And overmind was, it was in a sense kind of similar to a pure witnessing awareness. And then as you moved higher into supermind, that was more a non dual where spirit and matter were starting to come together in an absolutely almost fused way. And so much so 
that spirit was sort of injecting matter with its own qualities. So matter was going to become more and more spiritual in its own way. And that was going to be uh, a, a really major, and for him, that was the next new major stage of evolution. And, of course, one of the things we find with a handful of people that really are largely and deeply enlightened and that also study the understanding of evolution that was introduced by the West, particularly the German idealists, is an Orbindo you know, was educated in England where he was deeply exposed to, to the idealists. Or if you have something like um, Pilar de Chardin, profound researcher in evolution, had profound waking up experiences. And so he, like Orbindo, tended to see evolution just moving to, we get to finally sort of almost an omega kind of point that's just the unity of unity of unity of unity that can't be outdone. And the supermind was like, you know, the biggest sort of evolutionary development we could have. And in some ways, these are direct intuitions and deductions of extremely brilliant people that um, are thinking ahead in a very far way and have had some sort of waking up experience and have some understanding of evolution. And so those are incredibly important topics to be able to bring together. And that's what several of them did. And in a sense, starting with Hegel, who saw all of history leading up to the, the, the present stage. Um, for Orbindo's supermind, because spirit is in a sense injected into matter, we're going to start see changes in matter including in some cases matter almost becoming luminous and glowing and changing its fundamental form. And this would change the, the, the entire nature of the body would become spiritualized. And so this is, as I would see it, that's a hypothesis for what these very real areas of evolutionary unfolding going to higher and higher levels with capacities for waking up. And the fact that all you have to do is look at 14 billion years of evolution to see that we've already come from dirt, from quarks and atoms, to the sonnets of Shakespeare, to the realizations of Buddha. This is a absolutely staggering evolutionary increase in capacity. And if you just double that again, good God, if you don't find something out there that looks like spirit that's radiant and pouring off light and making every sentient being radically happy, I'd be surprised. So who knows what's actually going to happen but these were the guys right there at the leading edge saying, oh, I see some really profound stuff coming our way. So maybe if we can survive global warming. 
Yeah, and any a number of other things. But exactly, um, I'm betting on surviving personally. I I am too, but boy, it's getting close. Isn't it's it? dicey. Yeah. Um, hmm. there could be some turbulence uh, before we're in the clear. Yes, it could. Yeah. A couple of questions here from people who are obviously very familiar with your work, and you may need to define a term or two in answering their questions. This is from Michelle in New Hampshire. She asks, um, spirit manifests as the four quadrants of the cosmos. Thus, spirit is the ground, the formless. Are quantum field and consciousness subtle manifestations of formless, yet one with all quadrants? Yeah, that's part one of her question. Does that make sense? I'll start with consciousness. There are two different meanings of consciousness that are given by the great traditions. And one of them is simply, in a sense, my own mind, my own individual consciousness. As it arises in this organism, and as I can see and introspect and relate to, uh, and so on. And it's essentially bound in, in a lot of fundamental ways to this particular organism. It represents the consciousness of the increased uh, complexity that the human brain has brought. As you go back and look at evolution, and it moves from quarks to atoms to molecules to cells to increasingly complex organisms, you find that there's an increase in complexity, there's an increase in wholeness, and there's an increase in consciousness. So that by the time we get to the triune brain, whose neuronal patterns there are more of than there are stars in the entire universe. This is clearly the most complex thing that we're aware of. And so it has the most consciousness of any other holon that we're aware of. And so that, that's one. And, uh, and holon means what? Define holon. A holon is a part. A holon is a whole that's part of a larger whole. Okay, good. So a whole quark is part of an atom. A whole atom is part of a molecule. A whole molecule is part of a whole cell. So an a atom whole is a holon to a molecule. A, a molecule organism. is holon to a cell, etc. The universe is made of holon. So that's the kind of consciousness that is localized, the type that Western psychologists would study, and so on. In most of the mystical traditions, there's an understanding, there's a feeling, a direct awareness of individual identity just breaking out of this organism and expanding pretty much the entire cosmos. And then in many cases, it's seen and it's felt to be the actual ground of the entire cosmos. It's its foundation. Um, And when you have a Satori, an enlightenment, a waking up, what you're doing is going from this small, confined consciousness to this big mind, to this cosmically unified, vastly all-inclusive type of consciousness. And then it tends to be equated with things like spirit, and you can't really qualify it, so it's equated with things like emptiness. Um, And so 
if we look at the small localized consciousness in our brain, that's found directly in the upper left quadrant. That, that's what it is. The interior of the individual and the consciousness of the individual in the, in the upper left. Big mind, big consciousness is more, it's not something that's found in each quadrant. It's the ground of each quadrant. In a sense, if you draw the quadrants on a sheet of paper and write everything in it that's in them, then those quadrants are the manifest realm. In the upper left quadrant is consciousness. In the lower left quadrant is culture. In the lower right quadrant are social systems, including ecology and environment. And the upper right are individual exterior things, like the actual triune brain itself. Consciousness is located in the upper left, and in big consciousness, big mind, isn't in any of the quadrants. It's the paper, it's the ground on which all the quadrants are drawn. It's the fundamental ground of all reality. And so when mystics say, like Huang Po talks about having an experience of big mind, or Genpo Roshi talks about doing big mind, that's the consciousness they mean. And again, under those circumstances, like in Hinduism, Sat, Chit, Ananda, being, consciousness, and bliss. And those are just synonyms for ultimate spirit itself. That, by the way, is the consciousness in which the brain exists. So this doesn't all exist in the brain. Big mind isn't a product of, of the brain. Small consciousness is a product of the brain. Okay, good. Here's another one from uh, Michelle. How does universe as an informational hologram fit in this map of the cosmos and the idea that everything is a participating conscious agent? What does human consciousness contribute to this? Right. Well, here's we have to actually be careful about how we can actually describe any ultimate reality. And the problem is that any word we use really has meaning only in terms of its opposite. So if we, it's infinite versus finite, pleasure versus pain, good versus evil, up versus down, in versus out, there are really very, very few terms that don't have some meaning contrasted with, with, with an opposite. And they have some sort of boundary. They describe something, like the word dog describes dogs. It doesn't describe gorillas. So all the words we use are usually opposites, and they all have boundaries. The problem is ultimate reality doesn't have an opposite, and it certainly doesn't have a boundary. And that's why virtually every major tradition maintains there are two very different ways of even approaching spirit. So in Hinduism, they have two names, Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. In Christian mysticism, they talk about apophatic mysticism and cataphatic mysticism. 
These mean the same thing. Nirguna, N-I-R means without, and guna, G-U-N, means quality. So nirguna, without quality, Brahman. And so that means uncharacterizable Brahman. It means Brahman without any possible qualities, including that one. That's denied as well. And so this is sometimes called nete nete. It's not this. It's not that. It's not this. It's not that. You simply can't characterize it at all. And that's one of the reasons that you can't just sit back and think about ultimate reality and have that be the same as Satori. Because it's, it's just a conceptual. But then most of them have something called saguna brahman or cataphatic. Sa means with, and guna, qualities. So Brahman, with qualities. Now these are all considered to be metaphoric. They're not absolute. Absolute is near guna. You can't say. But sa guna means, here's some things it's like that will give you an idea of what it is. And then in almost all of the opposites that we can think of, Sakuna Brahma is described by taking the positive aspect of the opposites, giving it a capital letter, and then saying that refers to Sakuna Brahman. So, for example, good versus evil. Sakuna Brahman is capital G, good, not evil. But the capital G good includes small good and small evil because it's supposed to be non-dual. Love versus hate. God is love. But that's capital L love that includes small love and hate. It's true. Goodness. Beauty. All capital letters and all including. So truth, capital T, includes Small t, truth, and small f, false. Beauty includes, capital B, beauty, includes small b, beauty, plus small u, ugly. However you want to do that. Good, capital G, good, includes small g, good, and small b, bad. And it's just one of the problems we have when we're talking, remember, about the ground of being, of everything that exists. What word could possibly accurately describe that when there's absolutely nothing else like it anywhere in our universe where we could ever have learned to form words about? So that's what makes that a very, very delicate situation and being able to even talk about that makes that very, very difficult. And it's one of the reasons that Nagarjuna, for example, but you also find this around the world, but Nagarjuna will call this ultimate Nirguna Brahman, ultimate reality, emptiness. And that means that you simply can say nothing about it. It's empty of words. It's empty of things. 
So Nagarjuna will say it cannot be called void or not void. But in order to point it out, we call it the void. So always we have this problem of what we can actually say about that ultimate reality. Now for Nagarjuna and most of the mystics, there's still a way to know that ultimate reality. You can't say it. You can't just think it. You can't just conceptualize it. But you take up practices where you directly realize it. And that's the only way you know what emptiness means, is when you have a direct satori realization. Before you have that, everything you say about it will be wrong. Because you clearly have no idea what it is. When you experience it, almost anything you want to say about it will work. Because you know what it is. And that's a problem. And it's one of the real problems when it comes to like trying to use modern scientific theories and say, ah, this is the same as the mystical realities that the mystics know or the Tao of physics or something like that. I mean, it's understandable, but it's really bad mysticism and it's bad physics. So it's, it's a delicate area. It's a delicate area. We know it directly by acquaintance, not by description. Yeah, I think the Upanishads or someplace says something like that the knower of Brahman is Brahman. Um, you know, and there's that saying in the Gita, the self realizes the self by the self. Um, you know, because, you know, if it's a thing that you standing apart from it realize, then that then it can't be the totality because you've, you've automatically excluded yourself from it or it from you. And if it is a totality, then obviously it has to contain all qualities. Everything, like you were saying earlier, you know, it has to be the the, the the wholeness that contains all the parts, no matter how paradoxical or opposed to one another they may be. They're contained comfortably within that wholeness. Right, and that itself is paradoxical because if you're going to include absolutely everything, then you're going to have to include something that excludes absolutely everything. If you're really going to include it. So you always end up with self-contradictions when you try to do it. Yeah, I've heard mathematicians play around with this idea and try to put it in their language, but let's not go there. Uh, (laughs) Here's one from Kathy in Los Angeles. You've stated that Ramana Maharshi may be the greatest realizer of all time, and yet that he is not a good example of your integral view. Would you please elaborate on in what ways is Ramana the greatest realizer ever, and in what ways does he not live up to your integral vision? Yeah, well, just in terms of the purity of his waking up, I just think a lot of people who read him are just struck by the absolute clarity, the absolute consistency. He went into this, like, three-day samadhi when he was something like 14, 15, 16 years old, came out of it, um, with a profoundly mature voice reflecting jnana or the pure self-realization. And that voice never changed for his entire life. It, it's just he plugged into it and it was just there and it was striking. And again, just the purity of that waking up, just the purity of that realization 
But if you looked at, at any of the other talents that could have been included in what he was doing, he wasn't in relationship. He didn't have children. He didn't have a job. He didn't have any sort of work schedule that he had to do. He didn't have any financial system. He essentially sat in the cave and sat. That was it. And so so just by definition, that's not actually getting into very many other areas of human activity at all. So although you can you can say, I continue to think that his waking up was just a beautiful, profound thing. The rest of the capacities that human beings have, he didn't work on, he didn't practice, and he didn't really manifest many of them in any really highly developed and evolved fashion. So we could say it just wasn't his dharma, you know, whereas the vast majority of us listening to this and involved in the so-called real world have dharmas that are going to have to incorporate, um, that are going to have to include all this relative stuff that we need to deal with, some of the things you just itemized. Yeah. Okay, going from the sublime to the ridiculous, the final question is about President Trump. (laughs) You wrote a book uh, called... Trump in a post-truth world, and Mario from Mexico asks, would Ken be able to give his thoughts on President Trump? (laughs) Yes. Well, Trump is, uh, I think exit polls tell the story fairly fairly well. 63% of the people that voted found Trump completely unqualified to be president, 63%. 61% of them found him to be psychologically unfit to be president, 61%. Um, another 60% said they had profound worries that he could do real damage to the presidency. And yet... Out of the 83% that want to change in this country, over 90% of them voted for Trump, even though they were the ones that voted for all the others. They still thought he was unqualified. They still thought he was psychologically sick almost. But they want to change so much that, again, 83% ended up voting for him. And that was really what, what put him over. And Trump himself clearly has some very strong narcissistic tendencies. That means at the egocentric, selfish stages of development. In some ways, he has a, a lot of ethnocentric. Um, he's particularly... Um, xenophobic, anti-global, hyper-patriotic. He's certainly charged, although these can be a little bit unfair, but he's charged with a great deal of racism and a great deal of sexism. 
If so, those are all ethnocentric stages of development. We find those qualities emerge at those ethnocentric stages of, of, of development. Um, but what that did, because then above that, you have the standard um, rational, modern, orange, Wall Street, business type of uh, stages of development. And he clearly came out of that, uh, of that territory. But then above that are the postmodern, pluralistic, multicultural, politically correct stages. And that's what, even in America, well, even around the world, that's caused one of the major political problems that we have is that there are people that just hate political correctness. Um, and Trump was somebody that everything that came out of his mouth was anti-political correctness. He just stepped all over it all the time. And the people that also hated political correctness loved him for that, absolutely loved him for it. And so that was what, those were the lines that gave these two blocks that voted. One was the working class. One was the um, egocentric and ethnocentric sages, tended to be a little bit racist, a little bit sexist, but were totally anti-political correctness. And then there were those who were political correctness, multicultural social justice warriors. And that was the typical Democratic Party. That's what Hillary Clinton ran on. And that set it up for two violently opposed types of, of political thinking. And it just turned out that a large group of people had gotten so sick of the politically correct social justice warriors uh, universities that had safe spaces and trigger warnings and microaggressions. These were all just thrown over as people voted for Trump. And almost everybody that voted for Trump had a lot of qualms, a lot of questions. As I said, mostly 60% of those that voted for him found him unqualified and problematic in the deepest sense. But he spoke to some of these other deep issues that are um, really racking the world right now. We see the same issues in Europe and, and, and the real problems that's causing. I mean, so much so that somebody like Douglas Murray writes a book called The Strange Death of Europe. But it's happening, and it's happening because of these multicultural uh, problems that nobody really knows how to handle. And so it's you're for it or you're against it. If you're against it, you're for Trump. If you're for it, then you tend to be for the far left and things like Hillary Clinton. That, that's a central cultural problem that we have right now. And that's not really going to clear up very well at all. And incidentally, 
it comes directly from these stages of growing up. The mythic literal ethnocentric stage tends to drive the religious fundamentalists. And then the stage at orange, rational, world-centric, profit, excellence, that tends to drive Wall Street and the Wall Street Republicans, and they still like merit and progress and so on. And then there's the third major value system in the cultural war are the multiculturalists, the postmodernists, the relativists, and they think that all cultures are absolutely the same, and all human beings are also absolutely the same. Nobody's better or worse than anybody else. So it's a radically egalitarian value system. And the problem with that is it's self-contradictory because they maintain that no value system is better than any other, except they believe that their better. <laughs> are better than everybody's. So it's a real problem. But it, 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 in large measure, it comes from exactly these stages of evolutionary growing up and the major differences that they bring to the world, including religion, politics, science. It's just astonishing. And the only thing that's more disturbing than any of, of the previous stuff is that almost nobody has any understanding whatsoever about those stages of growing up. They've been tested now in over 40 different cultures. And not, I mean, and this includes Amazon River tribes. It includes Australian Aborigines. It includes Indianapolis housewives. It includes Harvard professors. No major exceptions have been found to these major stages of growing up. They're real, but almost nobody knows about them. It's almost completely unknown. There's hardly a college professor anywhere that has any understanding of them. It, it's, it's outrageous. But this is part of the silly, problematic areas that, that we face now. Well, I think there have been a lot of things over the years that have stayed beneath the radar and hardly anyone has known about them. And then at a certain point when the timing's right, they kind of go into the mainstream. And I've heard you talk about percentages that it may be if 10% yeah. of society got to yeah. an integral stage, there would be a, a phase transition or yeah. a tipping point and there'd be a huge yeah. cultural shift. And, yeah. you know, I believe in that sort of thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, you know, 1% of the cells in the heart are pacemaker cells. They regulate the beating of the rest of the heart. And square root of 1% of the photons in a laser all have to get coherent before the rest right. of them entrain and the whole thing becomes a coherent wave. Right. So who knows what the percentage will be exactly, but it, it could be that. I mean, you know, and in terms of how unexpected tipping points can be, you can have water at 99 degrees centigrade. You have no idea that one more degree and it's going to start boiling. Absolutely. But sure enough, all of a sudden it does. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and this North Korea thing is promising. I mean, wow. And surprising, but yeah. there it is. Huh, interesting. Yeah. 
All right, Ken. Well, I really appreciate your generosity. We've gone for almost two hours and 45 minutes, which is <laughs> about 45 minutes longer than I usually go. But I really wanted to sort of milk this opportunity for everything I could get out of it. And I've gotten a lot out of it. And I'm, Great. I'm, I'm sure all the listeners and viewers have. Um, so I really appreciate your, your time. And, Thank you, um, sir. It's been a it's very been a stimulating conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me make a couple of just quick wrap-up points. So, um, you know, as everyone knows, I've been speaking with Ken Wilber. And as always, I'll put a, a page on badgap.com about this interview, from which I will link to his website and any other relevant things that Ken is involved in, and including a number of links to his books. I won't link to all of them, but a number of his books. And if you just go to Amazon and type in Ken Wilber, you'll probably see all of them. I guess that's it in a nutshell. If you explore the menus at batgap.com, you'll see a few things that I don't want to go into the details of telling you about right here, but they're pretty obvious and you might find them very useful. So please do that if you're so inclined. And again, thanks a lot, Ken. You bet, my friend. It was great fun. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. You too.